again, everybody. Scott Bowden and Brian Lass right along ringside and ready to go with another big day of the Kentucky Fried Wrestling Podcast. And today we are going to be discussing a building that is near and dear to my heart. I'm talking about the home of Memphis Wrestling for so many years, the Mid-South Coliseum in Memphis, Tennessee. Today on the program, Scott, Marvin Stockwell, co-founder of the Coliseum Coalition, an organization to help make the save for the Mid-South Coliseum, when it seemed like the famed roundhouse was on the ropes and ready to be down for the count, will be with us to discuss everything that is happening today with the Mid-South Coliseum. That's right, Brian. And we are also going to kick off our countdown of the 10 most memorable Monday nights in Memphis wrestling history with number 10, a look at the empty arena match with Terry Funk with special guest Chris Zellner from the Between the Sheets podcast. Well, if we're going to get it all in, we better get going. We'll be right back after this message. I guess we got enough light and everything. We can, uh, we can pick it all down. And what we'll just, you know, I don't even know that they're either one of them going to show up. Yeah, okay. Pardon me. Let me get rid of the cigarette. Give me a countdown, will you? This is Lance Russell standing in the middle of an empty Mid-South Coliseum. I think most wrestling fans know that Terry Funk, the former NWA World Heavyweight Champion, issued a challenge to Jerry Lawler to meet man-to-man. Uh, of course, Funk had accused Lawler of having Homer decisions uh, in his battles with uh, Terry Funk previously and with brother Dory Funk Jr. and, and so forth. Uh, he said, no fans, no officials, no police, nobody, you and me. Uh, I guess you just have to call it what he's looking for as a shootout. He made the challenge, asked me to deliver the challenge publicly so that it would be on record that he had challenged Lawler. Uh, Jerry Lawler uh, later said, set it up. And so here we are. We're in the Mid-South Coliseum, 11,300 empty seats. And that's all that will be here to witness this particular bout, with the exception of myself and cameraman Randy West. Uh, Funk asked that there be a camera and a tape crew here so that we would be able to have a record of his demolishing Lawler in the event that it takes place. It's right now 10 minutes to 1. The time that was set on it was 1 o'clock. Neither of the participants are here at this time. We will just have to wait and see. If it takes place, you'll have a record of it. If it doesn't, uh, then you will never see this. And we are back on Kentucky Fried Wrestling. As most of you know, the Mid-South Coliseum is near and dear to my heart. That wonderful flying saucer-shaped arena was built in 1963 and quickly became known as the entertainment capital of the Mid-South. But for a lot of Memphians, it was the house that Lawler built. Now, we have discussed the first night I attended the matches at the Coliseum on January 29th, 1979, the evening of the Millmaskers Monday Night Mystery that has been discussed, debated, dissected with the likes of Jim Cornette, Jerry Lawler, Jerry Jarrett, Austin Idol, yet remains unsolved. Now, this would be the first of many nights at the Coliseum for me, and they were all magical. 
For years alongside my Uncle Robert, I recall that feeling of pulling into that fairgrounds parking lot and passing that rickety wooden zip and pippin roller coaster at the Liberty Land theme park next door and shivers that felt like lightning bolts were, would go down my spine, giving me goosebumps in anticipation of the Memphis mayhem ahead that evening. Now, Memphis was a notorious walk-up town, meaning that most fans purchased the tickets the night of the event. Often the line extended outside the lobby and into the parking lot, which was a welcome sight to promoter Jerry Jarrett's eyes as he pulled into the fairgrounds after driving in from Nashville. Now, after my uncle plunked down eight bucks for two load seats, I had hit poor Robert up for a 50-cent souvenir program. The Wrestling News magazine sold only at the arenas, the stale popcorn with butter, butter that appeared to have been applied with a spray can, the Cokes with the melted ice sold by distracted teenage vendors trying to watch the action in the stands, Mrs. Guy Coffee chain-smoking at the gimmick table, the massive PA contraption hanging directly over the ring, which I always envisioned snapping from its cables and squashing the wrestlers below, and the round-shaped ceiling with missing tiles, which were blown off during the annual monster truck and tractor pull events, which seemed to provide nearly flawless acoustics for the fans' cheers and jeers. After the matches, the snake-like lines getting out of the parking lot with drunken fans darting in front of our car was just as thrilling and exciting. And if the heels had gone over in the main event, the irate fans could be even rowdier. This is the stuff of childhood memories. And Memphis, which was a minor league sports graveyard growing up, our home team was Lawler, a local who went from being a skinny high school kid to the Southern Heavyweight Wrestling Champion in less than five years which where I grew up pretty much made you a legend. The home field was a blood-stained mat at the Coliseum that served as a stage to some of the most outrageous antics in the history of the business and men who would go on to become the industry's biggest stars. But the Coliseum was also many things to different people. For some, it was Elvis Presley's kingdom, not the house that Lawler built. For many, it was the home of Memphis State Tigers basketball. And for others, maybe it was the venue where they first saw artists such as the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Van Halen, Kiss, and Prince performed for the first time. Sadly, since 2006, this once great arena has set dormant, with local politicians threatening to tear it down despite its historical significance and potential to be a mid-sized venue for the city once again. But thanks to events like the Roundhouse Revival, the Coliseum is not down for the count. My guest today is Marvin Stockwell, co-founder of the Coliseum Coalition and Friends at the Fairgrounds, and he is returning with Roundhouse Revival 3, which is going to feature the Coliseum and what it was once known for, three great brands, music, wrestling, and basketball. Marvin, welcome to KFR. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, now, we talked a little bit before the interview. Uh, now, I didn't realize that mm -hmm. you guys have really made significant progress uh, to where you know we were like maybe 10 years ago, uh, where it looked like the Coliseum was actually in danger of, of being the victim of a wrecking ball. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about the progress that yeah. has been made directly uh, as a result of your organizations? Sure. Uh, Coliseum Coalition was really an organization that was born out of uh, a threat. Uh, uh, so we kind of like built the built the apparatus and the or built the plane and the runway uh, all at the same time and, and got it in the air uh, because we loved the Coliseum and we knew that it was a useful building, a treasured civic asset uh, with so many great memories and so much future utility. We thought so there was a plan uh, on in play 
in 2014 a proposal which called for the demolition of the Mid-South Coliseum. So from about we, we formed in late 2014 and then all throughout 2015 uh, using events like Roundhouse Revival 1 and 2 uh, in May and October of that year, we made the case that, um, that the building was beloved. And uh, the Coliseum Coalition in 2016 also uh, did a building assessment that showed that the building is actually in great shape, uh, which was counter to the narrative that it put put forth by those who wanted to see it demolished. Um, that finding, those findings that it's in good shape, has also been corroborated uh, by the city's uh, own due diligence. Uh, in their uh, looking at the property, they hired uh, an engineering firm, and that and that firm corroborated that it is indeed in really good shape. Uh, the Urban Land Institute um, that the city brought in in the summer of 2015 um, said, recommended that the city reconsider demolishing the Coliseum. They said the Coliseum was built as a sister facility to the Liberty Bowl uh, back in 64. They made note of the fact that it was the first integrated building built in Memphis uh, and that the civil rights history of the building was also important. So the Urban Land Institute um, recognized that the Coliseum was significant, and their advice to the city was find a way to reopen or repurpose it. So all throughout 2015, slowly but surely, uh, public opinion about the viability of the Coliseum changed in favor of reopening. And that's not just my opinion. That is was reflected in uh, surveys and polling data from uh, Memphis Heritage, the uh, the National Charette Institute, uh, and the Commercial Appeal. So demonstrably, people – I think that the false narrative of it being in bad shape was – no one believed it at all. But the more people spent time around the building, were reminded about what was great about the building, what it was famous for, uh, and were shown that it was in good shape – uh, attitudes turned around uh, to where people were in favor of it being reopened. And since then, so that was through 2015. In 2016, uh, a friend of mine and I co-founded a group called Friends of the Fairgrounds. And what we tried to do was, uh, well, it was, a, it was a year-long stakeholder input process by which we said, Hey, you people who work on or adjacent to the fairgrounds and, and the people who live in the neighborhoods surrounding the fairgrounds, so people in Orange Mound and, and, and Beltline and Cooper Young and Humes Heights, where I live, uh, Edwin Circle, what do you all want to see the wider fairgrounds become? And that's important because it's one thing to reopen a, an historic building that's in good shape, but if you don't pay attention to what the plan is for the wider land part, it was our view that it would only be kind of a partial victory. And so we did that. And overwhelmingly, the, especially the neighbors said, we want the fairgrounds redeveloped with us in mind. We want it redeveloped with Memphians in mind. And we absolutely want to see the Coliseum reopened. So that leads us to kind of the present day where the city has done its own due diligence about the fairgrounds and the Coliseum. And we are on the cusp of the city announcing um, the kind of plan for, and they've been working on this, the the plan for what's called the Tourism Development Zone, or TDZ, um, for some time, uh, for almost a decade. But uh, our current mayor, Jim Strickland, uh, said, it's time to move on this, and it's time to finish this up and, and go to Nashville and, 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 and try to get it approved. 
Um, and that was helpful in that a couple of the stakeholder organizations that really weren't going to get involved until the mayor set the table have now entered the conversation. Um, and so now we've got everybody around the common table. Everyone realizes that the Coliseum is a valued you know, uh, civic asset. And the city included the Coliseum in its RFQ slash RFP uh, process. In other words, they said, hey, developer, you know, t- to any developer who's, who's, who's willing to uh, come up with a plan to redevelop the fairgrounds, we also want you to consider how you would redevelop the uh, the Coliseum. And that is a sea change. That is completely different. In 2014, the plan was to demolish. Now the city administration says, we want a plan put forth by a developer that reopens or repurposes the Coliseum. So from my perspective, we're in a really good position right now. Um, and you know, hopefully, those kind of those that that founding ethos that 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 kind of drove us forth to to found the Coliseum Coalition is about to come full circle. And hopefully, uh, in the next, I'm not exactly sure how long it will take, but but my sense is that in the next year uh, to two years, something amazing is going to happen at the fairgrounds. I hope that that includes a kind of holistic. Uh, well thought through plan for what the Coliseum can be. Well, you know, I was home in Memphis in 2015 for the uh, Tigers Ole Miss Rebels game, and I was amazed. Oh yeah, 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 which was just a fantastic, <laughs> beautiful, That's crazy. Yeah, 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 beautiful yeah. warm day. It was fantastic, and man, we rushed the field and the whole deal. Uh, and but yeah, but, yeah, but just walking up, I I had not been to a game in years, and I was amazed. Uh, at the work that had, the work and the thought that had gone into tailgating right next to the stadium, uh, yeah, you know, Tiger Lane, yeah, yeah, uh, just so impressive. And and I'm assuming that the, mm-hmm. that that you're envisioning the same for for the Coliseum, like an ex, almost like an extension of that. Yeah, I mean, I think there are any number of different good things that can happen at the Coliseum, and I think the most obvious thing is to reopen it as an ADA compliant uh, venue. Uh, I think in modernizing it to do that, um, and uh, so one of the guys on our team, uh, Chooch Pickard, he's he's a historical preservationist architect, (laughs) and he's really thought through exactly how his real name's Charles, but we can do it by Chooch. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Chooch. But uh, he's got a plan for exactly how that would affect the seat count. Now, currently, the Coliseum is built for 11,200 capacity. But if you made it Americans with Disabilities Act compliant, which it's worth noting, that's the reason the building was closed. Right. Yeah. Uh, is is that it that it was not brought up to ADA code? Uh, the city at the time, back in '06, just decided, well, we can spend the money to modernize the building and bring it up to code, uh, or the Department of Justice says we have to close it. So they chose closing it. And, you know, at that time, the pyramid was open. Plans for FedEx Forum were in the works. So, you know, it's it's not – you know, you can see how somebody might wind up with a decision like that. Okay, well, we'll let it close while we figure out what we're going to do with it. You know, and here we are 11 years uh, later. Uh, the uh, um, uh, the pyramid is now uh, a giant bass pro shop. Uh, which is astounding to me. Uh, you can't make that up. I mean, it's, it's too much. But, like, hey – it's great, right? So it's man, that's not my personal thing, but like I'm glad to see that it's being put to a good use. My point is, 
I think the most obvious thing that you could do with the Coliseum is to reopen it as, as a mid-sized venue. I would argue that it's the missing hole in our portfolio of venue offerings that is keeping Memphis a third. It, sadly, the, in the, the, you know, the city that founded rock and roll and rock and soul music with Stax and everything and Sun and Ardent uh, and Elvis and, you know, you know, the litany Big uh, has now dropped. Yeah, has now dropped back to being a third tier concert uh, destination city. Uh, and that's sad. Yeah. Um, and I think it is in part, maybe not in full, but in part, it's due to the fact that Memphis doesn't have a midsize venue. You know, somebody would argue, well, what about, you know, uh, Lander Center in South Haven? There are lots of Memphians who don't have any desire to go to a concert in South Haven. Uh, not that there's anything wrong with South Haven, not anything wrong with the Lander Center. It's really just a different market. Um, so I think the most obvious thing to do is to reopen it as a mid-sized venue. And uh, I think that would mean that the seat count would come down uh, at, at, with where you know you, you widen the seats to bring them up to modern standards and put in cup holders. You make the press box level. Uh, ADA uh, accessible with uh, with elevators, that would probably bring it down to between 4,500 and 7,000 seats, which would be perfect. And there's no other inside or, or indoor venue in Memphis that fills that niche. Yeah. And I think we need it. Yeah. And that was, it was always a tremendous venue for a concert. You know, it just, yeah. the, just the, the shape of it. It was just perfect for acoustics. Uh, you know, I vividly remember my first show, ZZ Top. Uh, I believe you told me you, yeah. you, you saw Kiss and ACDC, which... It, Kiss and ACDC I, in I, I bet, 78. I bet your ears are still ringing from, from, from that show. Absolutely. <laughs> but, Absolutely. Uh, man, that would just be fantastic. And you're right. You know, I, I post pictures all the time. I'm at the Hollywood Bowl and, uh, you know, Radioheads mm -hmm. here, all these great music acts, and my friends back home who mm -hmm. were so big music fans Memphis is such a music town and yeah artists just, yeah. you know and it's all started with the pyramid with with I think the horrible acoustics um yeah and, and artists just didn't want to play there um that's true and it, but it boggles the mind really that local politicians wouldn't realize the uh just how unique and how special that that venue was to folks growing up in Memphis um, and it's, yeah, there is an, there, and there's been so much development, there's been so much development, uh, downtown mm -hmm. and, you know, people are no longer just living in the suburbs, the raising families in midtown, the raising families downtown. So sure. it's had this resurgence. And, and I mean, now is the time yeah. for uh, the Coliseum to reopen. I think you're right. I mean, to, for people who aren't in Memphis, you know, you've got, uh, one of the biggest, like most, who would have thought this possible developments is the, the reopening of the old Sears Crosstown building. It's a million and a half square feet. And it's been recently reopened as a vertical urban village dedicated to healthcare education in the arts. It's a conglomeration of nonprofits, restaurants, apartments. Uh, now this has been done nationwide in other cities that had Sears distribution warehouses. But like in Memphis, we had a one and a half million square feet hulking empty giant. And we found the collective will to reopen it. And now, uh, Crosstown High is where my uh, my daughter is going to start high school here in a, in a few weeks, inside Crosstown Concourse. Uh, Overton Square has been renovated. Uh, yeah. Broad Avenue has come back. The 19th Century Club was, uh, was, was saved. So a lot of redevelopment. So you might ask, well, in, in, in Memphis has a wider wind in its civic sales 
things that once felt impossible don't feel impossible anymore. And that's what actually buoys us up and makes us realize we're, we're on the right track and we actually have uh, momentum uh, and wind at our back, so to speak, at least from the public perception part. Um, so that's all good. The thing that's that's keeping that's holding that when we started this, there were two things that were put forth that squelched all conversations about reopening the Coliseum. One was the false narrative that it, that the building is in bad shape and should be torn down. Now that has been unequivocally disproven uh, through two different, you know, the Coliseum coalitions, you know, um, assessment, but then the city's own due diligence. So that's no longer an impediment. Everybody realizes it's a, it's a, it's a beloved building that's in good shape. The, Last hurdle that we've got to clear is this um, Memphis Grizzlies non-compete clause, which it's a uh, it, it's essentially best understood as a first right of refusal. Um, Memphis, back when it opened FedEx Forum, they signed this non-compete clause, which basically says, "All right, Grizzlies, you get first right of refusal over any event that happens at other venues." Uh, and we will promise not to put public funding behind the building of any new facilities. Uh, and in exchange, the Grizzlies agree to take on all cost overruns of FedEx Forum. Sounds like a pretty good deal. Some estimate that that has saved Memphis $90 million since FedEx Forum opened. Uh, now, there's no way to corroborate that stat because that's not a publicly available number. But that, let's for a moment say that's probably right. Well, that's a good thing, Right. But the problem is the Grizzlies uh, do not want the competition. They they don't want the the competition that the Coliseum, the perceived competition that the Coliseum would bring because every entertainment dollar spent at other venues besides FedEx Forum are dollars they don't bring in, which means their cost overruns are higher. So like that that argument, like I get that, but what's not clear is exactly what the cost overruns are. And exactly how much competition we would we would argue that it wouldn't really be competition no. because they're, it's apples <laughs> and oranges. The, yeah. the FedEx Forum is eighteen thousand one hundred and sixty three seats. A, a, a renovated Coliseum could be more like five thousand seats, and it would play to a completely different um, set of audiences. And certain bands of a certain size would want to play there, but they would have no business playing the FedEx Forum. Um, but it, the, the Grizzlies have not, and, and, and I would. I would argue, actually, that the Coliseum would be a great place for the Grizzlies developmental team, the hustle, to play. But it's just there are a lot of hurdles. And, uh, you know, that organization navigates things very conservatively. And um, and I, I and on one level, I can understand it. But but on the other end, it's frustrating because I think if people had a civic vision for what were possible, uh, you could see that a renovated Mid-South Coliseum inside a revitalized fairgrounds um, where their their D-League team is playing uh, and concerts of a certain size return to Memphis, everybody would win on a larger level. Not to mention the PR win for the Grizzlies, which would be the, the lovable NBA grit and grind Grizzlies could be the great civic force that helped bring back the roundhouse. You know, in many senses, you talked about the house that Lawler built. Many people consider it the, the the house that Larry Finch built, you know, Orange yeah. Mound's oh, own, yeah. you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yeah. So, it, it represents so many different <laughs> things to different people, you know. And That's uh, right. Yeah. And That's with, right. And without a doubt, Larry Finch was was a, was a force, uh, not only as a player, but also as a coach. 
And uh, yeah, first time the Tigers ever went to the national championship game. Absolutely. Larry Finch, seventy-three. Absolutely, his, his legacy still looms large in this city, even with an NBA team. Only Bill Walton and UCLA could uh, could stop them. It seemed like but, could hold us back, and yeah. they did. Uh, God darn it. <laughs> Now, and, now, how important uh, was the first roundhouse revival in uh, showing local politicians that, you know, people still have a fondness for this venue. Mm-hmm. There's still potential for this to be a midsize arena for the city. Yeah, I'd say that was the moment where everybody realized the movement was real. And I say that for this reason. When we headed into that, I thought, well, we'll be lucky to get thousand hey maybe we'll get 1500 maybe even 2000 people north of 4500 people showed up uh and uh for a day of music wrestling and basketball and it was a diverse crowd it was um i think at first we were dismissed the coliseum coalition was dismissed as oh it's a bunch of you know middle-aged to older white guys that pan for <laughs> that, that that are pining for Van Halen or something, you know, Oh, it's a bunch of classic rock devotees that, that want to do this bring right. back. But you know, we just can't cling on to your memories. That was the logic. It's like, well, we all have our nostalgia, but like, come on, you know? And then when you have 4,500 people show up for music, wrestling and basketball, and it's as diverse as the city of Memphis is, and everybody's going bananas. Um, and then right on the heels of that, the ULI panel, the, the this kind of coalition of like ex mayors of other cities, and not the local ULI chapter, but the national ULI uh, office, embedded for two days and and put forth these summary recommendations that backed up what we what we'd been saying all along. That kind of came together within between May and June of 2015. You had this kind of like two part validation of our point, which was folks showed up huge and said. We love this. <laughs> you know, like, give us more of this. Can we can we go in? Where well, actually, no, you can't. But we hope you will someday. And then this national entity, this Urban Land Institute panel, basically corroborating that and saying, "Yeah, they, the the citizens have a point." And that was that was when when people said, "Oh, okay, wow, okay, this is a thing." <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 it's it was not, gratifying. Yeah, and it's not, and it's not. I don't, and I think you're right. It's, it's not just a one-time deal. You know, if if mm-hmm. they can, if they can make this work, uh, I think you know, a, a guy like me who grew, who grew up in Memphis. I mean, you know, if you could take your kid mm-hmm. to uh, to a concert there, or if you had a wrestling reunion show, and again, these are these are things like yeah. like a wrestling reunion show could work at a scaled down coliseum, mm-hmm. but there's but it yeah. would be, but it would be a money losing venture at FedEx Forum. Um, that's right. Like the WWE can, can play at the FedEx forum a couple of times a year and fill FedEx forum. But like there is, there is an, and there is a, there's definitely a bigger wrestling market. And that's, that's the reason you see these other, um, wrestling leagues that are come that, that, I mean, it's, it's essentially like the old rest way of, of wrestling, uh, the smaller scale wrestling it's alive and well in Memphis, uh, and, and the vicinity and it happens at civic centers. It's small. It's in smaller venues, but it's like Memphis is still to this day one of the most one of the strongest wrestling markets uh, in the country, uh, and everybody knows that. And you know, um, people say you know there's a big movement put put the wrestling hall of fame in in, yeah. in the Coliseum. One one side note here is that there is tons of square footage in the Coliseum. That's one thing I didn't fully appreciate till I started 
you know, taking people on these VIP tours. And I mean, I've been in the building, you know, 15 times in the last uh, four years. And you walk around there and you have kind of unfettered access to kind of look around. You realize how much space there is in there. So I don't think that like a reopened midsize venue. Yes. But how about some year round uses that would add to the kind of revenue stream that would make the make the building more financially sustainable? I think there are any number of different things are possible from from a wrestling museum, and you know, we've talked to Lawler uh, before, and Lawler says, "Man, I got the memorabilia." I mean, what would be better than that? You know, like than than a reopened venue with music, wrestling, basketball, with some add-ons. You know, you could have, you know, people who are following the news locally with uh, Elvis Presley Enterprises and and the Grizzlies and the city being involved in this lawsuit over Elvis Presley Enterprises wanting to build a 6,200 seat venue uh, contiguous with Graceland. Our point is, hey, why don't you just pile in with us because there's legitimate Elvis provenance in the Coliseum as long as the just for the day until the day and long. So it's like imagine a uh, an Elvis component to the Coliseum where there's perhaps uh, an Elvis themed restaurant or bar. Gosh, you couple that with wrestling and then you know the the, the Bass Pro te- shops downtown. I mean, do you think there's some synergy here for tourism? Hello. <laughs> yeah. you can, can you imagine? It like, could be huge. Elvis Week would just be a huge moneymaker. Huge. It would be a satellite campus. Yeah, exactly. You, it could be almost a second. It could be a second. Graceland Revenue Center, for for God's sakes. Uh, anyway, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the, with the forum here in Los Angeles, but it's it's an older venue, and they mm-hmm. put a lot of money into it, and and it was genius with the, what they've done. Yep. They uh, renovated the entire underground area and turned it into a bar. And it zigzags right, and mm-hmm. there's all this memorabilia. There's all these great photos of artists from the past who who have performed there. Wow! And it's just a shrine yeah. to the historical significance of the building. And the facade of the building is still was still kept in place. But, yeah. But it's but it's it's up to code. It's it's a, a popular venue. Wow! And they're drawing. Uh, I think Madonna is is going to play there soon. I mean, it's it's still a, a wow. It's still a mainstream venue. Uh, and there was, I didn't know a lot of that. Yeah. I didn't know a lot of that, but I, but I will say this. It's interesting that you bring that up because we recently, uh, two months ago, we were given, uh, we've been giving regular VIP tours to potential investors. And we had this, this guy, he splits time between LA and Memphis. And he actually just bought a really big building downtown that he's going to re- redevelop his office space or whatever. Anyway, he had some fellow investors in town that he was working with on other projects. And while they were in town, he's like, hey, man, my friend Chooch is working on this thing, the Coliseum. Would you want to go see it? So they said, sure. So I was part of this tour where at least four of the people on this tour were LA folks. And that is the first thing that they said is they mentioned the forum. And 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 I mean, they, what you actually gave a much better explanation. Like I, I can kind of, you, you painted the picture well, but all of them were like, they the corollaries to them were absolutely crystal clear between the Coliseum and the forum. And they're like, and, and that just corroborated the fact that this happens in other cities as well. You know, we once did a, a comparison of other major cities, peer, peer size cities uh, that have NBA teams with a brand new shiny NBA venue, but they also have somehow managed to preserve their Coliseum era venue and turn it into a great uh, second act place that for different types of events. Yeah. The Bojangles uh, Arena in Charlotte. I forget what the one is in, in San Antonio, but San Antonio has one built in 49 originally uh, that's also been repurposed. 
this is this is something that cities, successful cities, do. And I am uh, I'm kind of a hardwired as a glass overflowing optimist, and 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 I want to believe that Memphis is going to get this done. We are going to find the collective will to answer the Coliseum question. Um, it is going to take uh, some courage to get all the people around the table, including the Grizzlies. Um, and uh, heretofore, uh, that has not been the case. They uh, and you know, if, if I were the Grizzlies, I'd want to stay out of the public limelight as well. They don't want to be perceived as the bad guy. But they really that non-compete clause is the last thing that needs to be answered because until we answer that, and until we have people with the courage to say. We have to re-examine this. We have to rewrite it, renegotiate it, or whatever. Um, that's that's the kind of last impediment that we've got to clear, um, so that so that all this great entertainment that you and I have experienced and you and I can in, have have in, easily envision returning uh, can indeed return. Yeah, it, it's funny. I, I saw Queens of the Stone Age at the forum about two months ago, and just pulling into the video, I was like, uh-huh. "Oh my gosh, this it just it has the feel." Of the Mid South mm-hmm. Coliseum in 1979 and in 1980. Wow! And you go in and, and right. it, but it was so cool to see uh, the enhancements and improvements that they had made in the facility within the That's facility awesome. and the the comfortable seating. And then you know to see this pr- primarily young audience uh, packing this mm-hmm. place and so you know giving this giving this place a heartbeat, yeah. heartbeat again. Which uh, yeah, just, well, millennials crave authenticity. Yes, I mean, exactly. countless trend stories say. But what are millennials and, and the younger generations looking for? They're looking for things. They don't want some prefab thing that was built by a computer. They crave that authentic thing that came from, you know, uh, when American culture. I mean, in one sense, you know, like Memphis really set the tone for American culture for the 20th century. And if you think about a mid-century modern facility like the Coliseum and the things that course through the veins of that place, uh, it's such a touchstone to uh, amazing things that happened as rock and roll culture, soul culture, uh, uh, the coming together of, 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 uh, of, of black and white with the Stax musicians and the WDIA soul reviews that happened there. So much amazing stuff happened, and people crave that authenticity. I mean, look at the Tennessee Brewery downtown. It had been closed for 60 years. Well, they threw a beer garden in it, and everybody swooned, and then, hey, lo and behold, investors came forward, and they're reopening it. I mean, this happens again and again and again, and that's the value of previtalizing. If you get people into a treasured civic space, and they realize, you know, they say visual memory is the heart of emotion. Uh, and so when people start to see things visually, it conjures up emotions, but they also see things spatially and they start to go, oh, gosh, you could do this here. Look how much square footage is here. You know, you could put a so-and-so in here and people dream big. And it's just it's not a matter of of of, of, of desire. Uh, it's a matter of choosing to do the thing that honors authenticity and allows that to return. Because yeah. people will flock to it. Yeah, and, and yeah, and you're right. It's not just nostalgia. And and one thing, one thing that I that I look at, I love. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a photographer named Mike Shields, and he was the photographer mm-hmm. for Jarrett Promotions uh, during the '70s and and into the early '80s. And he would take crowd shots, mm-hmm. and it's mm-hmm. just amazing. I mean, the makeup is just so different. You know, they're, uh, yeah. you know, first of all, old ladies at ringside. I miss old la- old ladies should be in the front row at pro wrestling. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, that is yeah. what, you know, and, I, I, and I've been attacked by a few during my days as, as a heel manager, but, uh, but they, 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 you know, they made the business so, so, wow. much, so, so much fun and great because they believed with all their heart <laughs> what was going on in the ring. And that, yeah, that Shakespeare, absolutely. you know, Jerry Jarrett calls it Shakespeare for the masses, which I think is a good way of putting it. But, oh, that's but, well put. I totally get that. Yeah. But you're right. You know, young, old, black, white from all walks of life, mm-hmm. uh, or, yep. or in every section of that Coliseum crowd. And it's just cool yep. just to look at the faces. And it's the one thing in, in, a, in a racially divided town like Memphis, you know, which often often is mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. was for me growing up. That's other than mm-hmm. Bill Street. That's it's like where it all comes together. You know, uh, the uh, wrestling, yeah. wrestling at the Ellis Auditorium was the uh, first integrated sporting event. Uh, thanks yeah. to Sputnik, Sput- Sputnik Monroe yeah, and, and that whole history. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Memphis has a really special place, and you know, it, if you're if you're not really if you don't really look at the subject matter, you can miss the actually very important civic role that wrestling did play in the city uh and in 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 and not only civil rights but uh but bringing folks together even more broadly than that and so uh and that's something you know i was <laughs> i had parents who like uh, as soon as wrestling came on the, uh, they'd let me watch for about 10 minutes and they said, well, i turn it off you know like I, I i so i didn't i did go to tv5 wrestling one time uh with my brother's cub scout troop but um i was a wee below but anyway <laughs> but i never i never unfortunately went to monday night wrestling um but on the other side of it from my entry point through civic activism and a desire to 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 reopen the building it has given me a lens into the importance that uh role that wrestling did play and i've come to respect it uh, and uh, and revere it in a way that I I didn't as as a kid and it's just just getting getting know uh, Jerry Lawler and, and Bill Dundee and 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 and, uh, and seeing them you know come out of the woodworks I mean this is a legendary tag team and they reunited to face these bad guys the Coliseum Crushers um, totally <laughs> pro bono and at the time you know Lawler was sixty four Dundee was seventy two like what kind of great men you know just do that like put themselves to the test physically. Uh, and they, you know, they, they knew that we were a, a bootstrap DIY, you know, putting it together with, you know, pocket lint, duct tape and spit kind of organization. So, you know, they, they did it out of the goodness of their heart because they loved the building, you know, and Lawler from, from the ring, you know, open up this great building, you know, Dave Brown, you know, he had just recently retired from channel five. He takes the mic. Let me tell you about this great building, and he just carries on for like five, seven yeah. minutes. Yeah. Um, yeah. The, 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 the goodwill of that Dave, building. When Dave speaks, everybody just is like a hush. Probably. <laughs> he, you know, he has so. It much, was amazing. He has so much credibility. It was amazing, and I actually captured. I captured it, uh, and it's the, the one thing I ever posted to YouTube. It was like about a fifteen-minute video, uh, and I, I captured the whole speech. I captured the whole match. Uh, but, but including Dave Brown's, you know, opening remarks, <laughs> it was a special day, really special day. And you're right. Dave Brown has a, he's another guy. He has a special place in this, in this, in the psyche of this city. Not only was the most, he's the most trusted weatherman and, you know, modern Memphis history, but he also was that great announce part of that announcer, you know, uh, duo for, yeah. for wrestling. Yeah. And we, it, it was the perfect compliment to Lance Russell because Dave was always kind of reserved and the man in charge was yep. Lance would get a little fired up and emotional. Uh, but then on the, yep. on the few occasions where, where Dave got riled up, it, it mattered, you know, it, wrestling is, yeah. it, you know, so much psychology. So when, mm-hmm. so when Dave's voice yeah. raised, 
you know, a few times. I can, I can count on the on the number of times on my hand that it sounded like Dave was going to get mm-hmm. up from his chair, and it that 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 meant that something <laughs> right. that meant something serious was going on. You know, uh, yeah. Two, yeah, two of the they all, were a great duo. Two of the all time best uh, at, at what yeah. they did, and and so many guys For came sure. through. I mean, you know, not only great. Uh, musicians, uh, but gosh, so many, so many wrestlers who got their start in Memphis, uh, who went on to be mm-hmm. NWA champions, WWE champions. Uh, it's like, yeah. a, it's, it's a who's who. I mean, pretty much everybody came yeah. from Memphis. And to this day, when I talk to people that are like, oh my gosh, you're from Memphis. So, uh, did you grow up? You know, I knew you managed in Memphis. Did you grow up there? So yeah, we used to go to the matches all the time. They're like, oh my gosh, what was that like? Uh, and, and, I, and so many people, I, I and, and talking to people on Facebook, yeah. the Mid-South Coliseum is the one venue that they would pick to see wrestling. Like if they could go back in time, pick one arena back in the eighties, yeah. it would be the mid South Coliseum. Cause they've just heard so much about it. And it's, and it's hard to explain. Yeah. Uh, just, just, it's uh, like seeing the Ramones at CBGB's or something back, back yeah. in 78 or something. I mean, it's like, it's a special venue for a specific, for a special, um, uh, you thing, you know? Uh, and, and it's like, uh, yeah, the, 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 the wrestling, provenance there and the importance uh to to people is just uh it, it's it's amazing people uh you know just go on and on about that venue uh when you say you're from memphis you know whether it be for a concert or for uh or for you know a lot of people you know who, who can I, I saw lawler wrestle kaufman <laughs> at the coliseum yeah. and you just think the person you know you know it's just like you know there's another uh putting on the kind of musical lens of this you know, there are seven buildings in the world that are still standing that both the Beatles and Elvis played, and only one of them's not open. And I and I don't need to tell you which one it is. It's the Coliseum, wow. which is ridiculous. I mean, the, the Beatles. Uh, there's a room in the Coliseum. The Coliseum was the Beatles' only southern stop on their '66 uh, U.S. tour. Unless you count Texas and Texas, like it, it is Southern, but you know, it's not the South. Um, but, uh, it's not the one where the KKK the, greeted them at the, at the entrance. And, I don't think, I think no, that, no, no, but it is, okay. but it was significant. It was significant. The Beatles, uh, had just, John Lennon had made his classic remark about how they were bigger than Jesus. Oh yes. And they're, Yeah. And the, the place where they did the press conference to respond to the criticism and try to and try to tamp down the 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 anger was at the Coliseum. And that room, you could still like on our on our VIP tours, we go in there. And and one time we went in there, and my buddy uh, Mike McCarthy, who's a filmmaker and a great kind of aficionado about all things Memphis history, he found this archival footage just sitting out there on YouTube, and uh, and he had it playing on his phone while we were in that room. And we were in the room because there are two mirror rooms, and we were trying to determine which one it was. There's one on one side and one on the other, and you can kind of spatially figure out, no, it was this one because, see, there's that you know, floor joist or that corner or whatever. But, I mean, that room is still just sitting there and just has items in storage. But, I mean, if you reopened the Coliseum, not only would everything else, like we, we stated, you know, be true, but you could also probably – feature that room and be like this this is the beatles press conference yeah. room you know 
Yeah, I, I could totally, any number of different bells and whistles. I could totally see like all these like mini documentary productions that 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 would come into play uh, as part of guided, yeah. as part of guided tours. Uh, when he's available, yeah. I'm sure Lawler could lead uh, some of these tours and talk about the, the oh gosh the, the history of the building. I mean, it's just yeah, uh, you know, and Memphis is that town. It's it goes beyond the Coliseum, and I don't I don't mm-hmm. know about you. Maybe it's more special to me because I come and go uh, out of the city, having lived in Los Angeles mm-hmm. for, for 20 years now, but. When I go home and, mm-hmm. I, and I walk the streets, man, you, you can just you, you just you feel the ghost of of Memphis past, mm-hmm. you know, uh, mm-hmm. because it has mm-hmm. such a heritage, and not only wrestling but music and basketball, and and it does. I I would argue that I would argue that that's starting to. And I don't mean give way as in the old is passing away, but there's a new vitality that 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 that's starting to energize, and I think it's part of that. One of the most gratifying things for me is when you take somebody on a tour of the Coliseum who's too young to have ever set foot in there or done anything culturally significant in there. So therefore, and they love the building too. They think the building is very cool. Or the, or in the case of these Los Angeles in, folks that were there, they'd never been inside the Coliseum, but they still thought it was super cool. My point is, you don't have nostalgia is important, and it can it's icing on the cake. But it actually isn't the only thing. Right. It's that new people are tapping into the authenticity that comes from this mid-century modern amazing building built back in 63 uh, that has all this civil rights provenance, where Lawler fought Kaufman, where Larry Finch held court before he took the Tigers to the national championship in 73, um, you know, where Kiss and ACDC played to a young Marvin Stockwell in fourth grade, you know, uh, yeah, and, and, and ZZ Top played, you know. <laughs> I know. I mean, there, there's so much that happened in there, and you don't have to have been in the building. For those of us who were back when it was open, we can absolutely press into those memories, and it just enhances it, right? But I don't – but people – plenty of people that aren't old enough to have that still think the Coliseum is awesome, <laughs> You know, yeah. Yeah. so I, I think you're I think you're right. But I think that there's a new chapter of optimism and fascination uh, with the Coliseum and, quite frankly, with Memphis culture, you know. Um, so I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, and tell us about. OK, now Roundhouse Revival was obviously very important because it, it helped people it helped open some people's eyes yeah. to what uh, the the site could be again. Uh, since that time, mm-hmm. a lot of progress has been made. Uh, what is the main objective of uh, Roundhouse Revival three? And tell it and give us mm-hmm. a rundown. We, we briefly mentioned uh, sure. music, wrestling and basketball. But if you could give us a rundown sure. of the entire day. Yeah. So I would argue that uh, Roundhouse Revival 3 is really, in many ways, the same. Uh, we're at a different point in, in the juncture of, uh, of the, the thing being – in other words, the collaboration with the city is what's new. But the value of reminding everyone, even ourselves, that the building is beloved uh, is, is, is important. Because I think that's important to keep in mind. We can't rest on our laurels and think that everybody remembers what happened back in 2015. Uh, it's important to, in the current context, with lots of people coming to the issue uh, only recently, we need to remind people of how beloved the building is. And then wed that to the fact that we've done a building assessment that shows it's in great shape. We've done a business plan. We've done all this other uh, statistical work. So I think it's important to remind everyone that the building is beloved uh, and to also take the occasion to remind everyone that the building's been proven to be in great shape. Uh, and then um, I think the city's going to be making uh, an announcement uh, here 
soon. Probably, I think they're set to brief the city council on Tuesday. So there'll, there'll be some news very soon about the city's um, uh, plans to complete the TDZ application and just what they hope to get in terms of revenue drawdown from the state, and then what that means in terms of their plan going forward. So they'll, they have a role to play, but I want as part and parcel with that conversation, it should be ringing in everyone's ears, just like a Kiss and ACDC concert, uh, that the building's beloved. That, that should inform the process. And we wanted to take the occasion uh, to kind of like have a whole lot of fun uh, all over again and, and, and ask, invite uh, Memphis and people in the surrounding area to come back to their treasured civic space that they love and have a great time. Because until the Coliseum's reopened and their events there again, you kind of have to manufacture it. You kind of have to go to great lengths to have an event near the Coliseum. You know, until the day that we can get in, uh, we, we occasionally have to throw a big party near, right outside the Coliseum, so that Memphians have a chance to be near their their beloved building uh, as a as a way to tide them over until they can be uh, inside. But I'm hopeful um, that the, the people at the city that we've that we've worked with most closely, uh, City COO Doug McGowan, HCD head Paul Young, and the city's lead uh, person on the fairgrounds, Mary Claire Boris have been wonderful to work with. They love our city too. Uh, they're just working on it from their end. Uh, and it's great to be at the table with the city now, uh, as opposed to in 2014, where we were in, in, in a bit of a pitched battle, a respectful battle all the while. We, we always respected the people at the city because we knew they had a tough job, regardless of whether we didn't believe, uh, you know, agree with them. Uh, but to be several years down the road and to have a collaborative relationship with city government uh, and and established that the building's in great shape and beloved, I'm, I'm confident that we can work through the remaining obstacles to reopen the building. But Roundhouse Revival 3 is important because I, it, at, a, at a basic level, I want to I have that much fun again. But, uh, but beyond that, it's important to, to remind people that the building is, is a treasured civic asset. And I think people will show up big. So as for a lineup, uh, and we can we can we can post uh, this to your, your your website or what have you. But we've got, you know, from a musical perspective, we've got Hannah Starr and the Teenage Teenagers, the Lucky Seven Brass Band, Heels, uh, Los Cantadores, uh, Albert King Jr. and the Final Touch Band, Marcel and her Lovers, Silver Star, Winchester and the Ammunition, and then headlining is the Jack Oblivion Band, Jack was in the famous mid-90s uh, garage rock band, The Oblivions. Uh, and so he's headlining uh, as far as music is concerned. But from a wrestling perspective, we've got uh, Derek King and Dustin Starr with uh, Maria as a tag team versus the hated uh, Coliseum Crushers, who <laughs> apparently didn't get a big enough whooping from Lawler and Dundee back in 2015. And gluttons they're for, back. Gluttons for punishment, those guys. <laughs> exactly. And they're they're back talking trash about the Coliseum and not just the Coliseum, but the Coliseum and Memphis broadly. And they're saying, bring the Coliseum down. And, you know, Memphis is old news. And, and you know, so, uh, you know, I, I don't think Memphians are going to tolerate that. I, I may just show up with my uh, Uncle Bobby's football helmet that he gave me from Florida State University. I may uh, have a swing at these guys if they keep it up. Yeah. I mean, hey, it might be it might be a it might be a real pylon, but we've got Derek and Dustin wrestling them. 
with an undercard of Carter Matthews uh, at, versus Addison Kane versus Zach O'Brien. Uh, later on at, at about five, you've got um, uh, Matt McNamara versus Jay Smooth, and then a tag team match, Lethal Injection versus Tattoo per, and Chris Lex. You've got um, at around 7.15, you've got the tag team match of the Hustlers versus Chris Rocker and Neil Taylor, plus the second main of the event uh, of the day, which is the main event to Derek King. So we've got kind of an early main event for the people who are going to come early because it is going to be a hot day. And we, we want to, we're kind of anticipating two kind of almost distinct crowds and only us crazy people will be there all day. Uh, but, but the main event too will be Derek King tattoo and Chris Lex versus the Coliseum crushers and Carter Matthews or Carter Matthew, excuse me. So, it should be an awesome day of wrestling, um, Memphis style. Yeah. Uh, and then an, yeah, and then an eclectic mix of great Memphis music uh, of all different types. And then we've got uh, the Orange Mound Raiders Youth Sports and Mentoring Program uh, under the direction of uh, Antonio Coach T. Huntsman. We'll be running the basketball for the day, uh, and we're probably going to have the America uh, Dunk Tank because it's going to be hot in all likelihood. And we'll have a, a, a number of other, you know, vendors uh, and community sponsors, you know, setting up booths, et cetera. It should be an awesome day. Uh, I know the superstar Bill Dundee will be making a guest appearance. Um, oh gosh! And I left total. I can't that, believe I missed that. Yeah, <laughs> that's okay. We just had we just had Bill on the show last week, so and you can tell you can still tell that that fire is still inside him whenever he talks about those Monday night memories at the oh, yeah. South Coliseum. I just want yeah. to be clear though, Law, you're not going to let yeah. Lawler sing, are you? Uh, let me say this it's not in the plan but if Jerry Lawler came to me and said give me the mic I've got a song would you tell him no no no, because he'd probably throw another no he wouldn't because he'd probably probably throw another fireball in my face and uh, I don't want to go through that again so yeah uh, let me say this we are indebted to Jerry Lawler and to Bill Dundee uh, so much that like there is almost nothing that we wouldn't do for those guys because they have done so much. WA World Heavyweight Champion Terry Funk has uh, something that he wants to explain about and we uh, are obliging him with that time. First of all, I'd like to say that Jerry Lawler is a son of a jackass. He's a lover of chickens. He has a one-track mind the same way a hog does at supper time or slop time. He's got a one-track mind just as that hog does, but he's not concerned about slop. I want to tell you, Lance, what he's concerned about. The man is concerned about money and money alone. And within this area right here, he has got the fans on his side. And besides having the fans on his side, he has got the police on his side. And besides the police being on his side, he's got the officials on his side. And I would like to say this, he's got you on his side. This is a completely one-sided thing where Jerry Lawler is involved. Now, I am telling you people that he has got one thing on his mind, and that's money. And I'm going to prove to you, Lance...
that he doesn't have any guts. And you see right here is I have got a date, I have got a time, and I have got a place. This is a personal invitation sealed right here to Jerry Lawler to ask him to meet me by himself with nobody else involved at an area that I know, he knows, and you will know, and I want you to bring the camera down there, but I don't want a referee. I don't want the police. I don't want the fans. I don't want money for this. What I want is I want to compete against Jerry. Lawler and I want to get him down and hold him down and I want to make him say to me personally Terry Funk you are the better man Terry Funk oh Terry Funk oh please let me up and let me go that's what I want to make him holler I want to see if he's got the guts to come down there the guts like I don't think a lot of people have around here. And I'm talking about the fans, Lance. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about a lot of different people. But Lawler does not have the stinking guts to come down there where no money is involved, where nothing is involved except personal pride. And I do have Texas pride, believe me. Well, there it is. Take this. Okay, I will take it, and I will deliver it to Lawler in there. No money, no fans. He's crying Homer and all that. Well, there's the challenge from Terry Funk to Jerry Lawler, and we'll deliver it to him. Yeah, well, that's what we're here today for. Wild. He wants no fans, nobody else. We should take a look at it. I've already looked You've at it. You've already opened it. Yeah, I look for the challenge. Well, you know, sharing the information <laughs> right there. Take a look at that from Terry Funk. Hmm? Okay. I see well, it. I see it. No. <laughs> That, no reaction. I just want a reaction to it. What do you want me to say? Okay, I'll... Him, nobody else around. Yeah, okay. Uh, well, okay, we'll be back in just a minute. Welcome back to Kentucky Fried Wrestling. And as I mentioned earlier, we are going to count down 10 of the greatest moments in Mid-South Coliseum history when it comes to Memphis wrestling. And uh, I thought, who better than to comment on moment number 10 than a man who's never even been inside the Mid-South Coliseum. He is Chris Zellner, co-host of Between the Sheets with David Bixenspan. Welcome to KFR, Chris. Thank you. Moment number 10 on the greatest moments of the Mid-South Coliseum. The empty arena match. Uh, now, this angle was sh uh, shot, I believe, uh, gosh, I used to know the exact date. I think it was around April, April 6th. Whoa! Let me, let me make sure it's either four for six, and I'm, I'm pretty positive it's six. Uh, April 6th, 81. Yeah. There you go. And that was just right off the top of your head. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, been cataloging my stuff lately and i just remember that date though i just remember the april 6th day well and it was it was clearly in the afternoon of a show that they were going to have later that evening yeah yeah because and king wore, and king wore white on the evening show so that's oh, how kind of <laughs> he didn't get any he didn't have any blood left over on the 
<laughs> I mean, come on. I wonder, and I wonder I, if he, I wonder if he wore the cape and the whole thing, or if he just felt completely. Uh, well, it was just a clip, a clip of him uh, wearing just in, in his match. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah, that evening, he probably they probably had up some bleach backstage. I'm sure. Coffee. I'm sure they. I'm sure they did. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's nowadays, not- nowadays, I'm pretty sure you know the buildings probably have washing and dry or stuff like that. But <laughs> I'm pretty sure they had some bleach. <laughs> I'm sure they did. Like the local porn theaters had bleach. You know, you gotta have your bleach there just in case. You never know when you need. Well, Eddie Gilbert told me like when he was as he was gushing blood all over me uh, when I was <laughs> as, a, as a referee and I was carrying him to the back. I was like, oh, I was looking at my my. Starts polo shirt that I've refereed in, and uh, he goes, he goes, he looked up at me. He's like, "Don't worry about it. Wash it in cold. Wash it in cold." And I was like, <laughs> "I said, just rip, just you know, we're ha- we're having this discussion as I'm carrying it to the back." And I'm like, "Really? That don't get it out of me? And, uh, do I need to put any kind of shout on it? No, 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 no. Just reg- you know, do it regular and and put it on cold. And and God bless hot stuff. It works. It's like that reminds me of the like the story they tell uh, when the. The managers goes in and visit the pitcher on the mound. The catcher visits the pitcher on the mound. What are they really talking about? You know, that's like <laughs> it's like you see you see you and Eddie going to the back, and you know you make out what they're talking. About. Oh, they're just maybe Eddie's telling them how hurt he is and stuff. No, it's not about washing clothes. <laughs> Here's how you wash. And it's a tip I carry with me to this day. Well, that's great. Yes. Eddie Gilbert uh, influenced in many ways. Yes, yes. His his legacy lives on. And Jerry uh, Funk was a big influence on Eddie Gilbert. That's true. That's true. And, uh, man, I had the pr- privilege of refereeing a, bow- a six-man tag with Terry Funk. It's first, only time I've ever been in the ring with Terry. And uh, he punched me for a DQ uh, finish. And then, and then Tommy Rich, I believe, gave me a pile driver. So on the same <laughs> evening... In front of about 8,000 people in the first uh, Memphis Memory Show, I was abused by two former NWA World Heavyweight Champions. <laughs> Amazing. Yes. Not many can say that. No. Not many can say that. Be proud of that. And I, and I, and I, actually, I won't, I won't say abused because that could be taken the wrong way. I was battered. <laughs> I was. <laughs> I took their best well, shots. <laughs> I'm sure there, there may have been some people over the years that have been abused by multiple NWA World Champions. We won't get too far into that, though. <laughs> that's... That's a that's a that's a that's a different episode. Yes, <laughs> allegedly. Yes, allegedly. Yes, that's the that's the Dateline episode. Larry <laughs> <laughs> uh, Hanson. Well, let's talk about let's talk about this angle now. Uh, I saw this live, and then I remember being just freaked out about it as a kid because it was such a gritty. Uh, rough around the edges uh, presentation, and you know, I, I think you know, it, it, I, and it was set up in such a kind of a, an unusual way uh, with Terry Funk, you know, saying that the police was on Lawler's side, the referee is on his side. There's something about the police though that really, <laughs> that really, really made the conspiracy sound a little bit deeper. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like maybe. Well, the- t- Terry was ahead of the game on that on that type of stuff. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 you know what? You know, you expect that from the fans. Maybe a hometown referee, and of course, Lance Russell was a homer who helped Lawler get into the business. So yeah, but the police, man. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, well, it's it's Memphis, you know, and Jerry was the key. Yeah. So the police, the police were uh, working for him. Yeah, he could. I think he had. I think he had authority to to just rip your badge off. I mean, really, whoever the mayor was in Memphis at that time probably didn't have nearly as much power as the king. That's, that's right. Why bother being the, the mayor when you can be the king? <laughs> exactly. Uh, but uh, so, and, and he starts it off, and he and he makes his point. 
by saying, first of all, I'd like to say that Jerry Lawler is a lover of chickens. (laughs) 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 Which... You know that's uh that's that's pretty hardcore stuff. You're throwing down the gauntlet when you say something like that. <laughs> yeah, I think so. He was a lover of many things. Chickens, I don't know. <laughs> He's got a one track mind like that hog with slop at supper time. <laughs> oh my goodness! And he's very funk had the gift of gab in promos because, I mean, his birthday was not that long ago and I was just posting stuff, videos and stuff of promos and, and he could just come up with, and all this stuff is stream of consciousness with, you know, with Terry. I mean, like everybody back then, there's no you know script writing or nothing. And he just like, man, where, where does he get this stuff from? Terry, I mean, he's just so gifted and coming up with this stuff, you know, about Dusty Rhodes or about Ric Flair or Lawler. I mean, he's just, that's why that's one of the reasons why he's the greatest of all time, in my opinion. That's one of the, one of the reasons. Not to go along with his ring work. I mean, his ability to entertain you as a promo and to make you get invested in any way, either as a you know, from an entertainment perspective, or whether you hate him, you love him, or you just want to see, you know, him get his ass kicked or him kick somebody's ass. I mean, he had he had the ability to do that that a few ever have. Yeah, and it was really interesting, you know, a nice contrast to Dory Funk Jr. Uh, and even Dory would sometimes, like, look at Terry and just like, oh, my brother, like, you know, he's really got a screw loose. Uh, and and the thing about Funk, he really came off as, like, a, a legit guy who really should be in an institution somewhere. Uh, it didn't didn't come off, like, over the top, like George the Animal Steel or, or any of those maniacs, but he... Because he could, you know, he could actually communicate. Um, yes. and, and you know, and you put him, and you put him with Lawler, and and with Lance in the middle there. It's, it's just uh, magic, absolute magic. In a territory like Memphis, where you have, you know, all these characters, you know, these wild characters, a, you know, a quote unquote gimmick territory, and Terry Funk comes in, and he's never really worked Memphis for, and he comes in and. He just he transforms everything he does, and it's so different from anything that Lawler has done. You know, since his definitely since he was on his comeback trail. Yeah. Um, I mean, and and this is coming from uh, after the big Austin Idol angle, where you know Austin was uh, Devontae Negro and all this type of stuff. But here comes Terry Funk, and, and everybody knows who Terry Funk is, former World Heavyweight Champion. You know. Movie star by the you know by this point been in Paradise Alley, um, been all over national television on TBS. He's he's a known commodity in wrestling. He's a major star, and Memphis would get major stars you know to come in a lot. But Funk, Terry Funk's a different type, and the fact that you're getting him coming on a like a type of a regular basis where he's actually shooting angles. You know, normally your major stars are coming in just for one spot at the Coliseum. One or two spots cost him at most. Terry Funk's in here doing angles and cutting promos on television, you know? So yeah. it's totally different. Yeah, including one right after uh, this segment. But but let's, oh, not, yes. but let's not get too far ahead of ourselves. And this was all set up by uh, what Jim Cornette calls one of the greatest matches he, he's ever seen live. Uh, the, I mean, and actually, I think he showed this matches to every one of his students 
that came through uh, Ohio Valley at one point. Uh, the big, uh, I think they call it in hunt and like when Lawler refers to it, he goes my big showdown match with Terry Funk, uh, in which Lawler they were both just bleeding buckets. Uh, Funk really going after the 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 broken leg, trying to re-break it with a chair. Uh, he takes a wicked bump. Uh, outside the ring of Lawler just and then his Lance Russell says he's swinging that chair like a big axe as, <laughs> as he just pounds yeah. on Punk's leg and, and Lawler wins by count out but clearly I mean yeah when Lawler came back from the broken leg he was just going over uh, clean on everybody uh, Jack Briscoe uh, and actually beat him with a wrestling move Jack was going for the figure four Lawler rolled him up and got, uh, got the uh, got the got the inside cradle and got the victory which is ironically how Punk beat Jack Briscoe uh, for the championship, so maybe Lawler's watching film. <laughs> that was, a, yeah, maybe, maybe had that film library that like Jimmy Garvin had, you know. But uh, um, that inside cradle finish was fairly common, you know, in that era with a lot of those NWA champion type guys too. So I guess it was a finish that was being passed around, or they just knew that's a a common finish. Because I mean, in the, in their match, we got to think Terry's calling, right? He's calling the match. I, I, yeah, I, yeah, I assume so. Yeah. So, so yeah. He calls it Lawler. Lawler's probably going to defer to the to the former world heavyweight champion there, and yeah, uh, and man, it, and and it is a classic. And now in the, in this this angle, the empty arena match is by no means a classic. And when you go back and and watch at the first, now I went about ten years between seeing this, and when I I have to admit when I saw it the second time around, the action itself is is it's pretty bad. And even even Lawler says so, uh, and and I think I think Funk has 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 agreed that maybe it wasn't the best idea because so much of of the presentation of wrestling depends on the crowd, and it you know they they did keep keep it brief. There, there, there was you know there are there there's some quick edits there. Um, maybe they weren't quite sure what they were getting, and then afterward I'm sure it was chopped to pieces, much like Funk's eye uh, in the end at the finish. <laughs> Uh, but you can't, you know, the, for me, the, the tone is set Lance, Lance, you know, first of all, when he entered, now this is not available, I think in most clips online, but I remember Lance said something before he even goes to the film. He says, you know, we've, we've had this for uh, a week or so, and we've been debating whether or not we can even show it, which my goodness, I mean, we've seen absolute insanity each and it every aired 12 days later. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> on, on the 18th. Yeah. It aired on April 18th. Yeah. yeah. All right. I was going to say, I was going to say two weeks, but then I thought, mm, I don't think it was quite two weeks. Well, two days, well, and, two days and short. Then, yeah, and you're, yeah. You're there with the, uh, with the facts and that's why he's yeah. here folks. Yeah. <laughs> to, to keep an eye. So so to speak. Uh, And so before it it even they even go to the tape, I'm like, going, what is this? Because we've seen absolute insanity on Memphis TV on a regular basis. And and this was up for debate. So immediately, you know, my sister and I are sitting side by side. We're just kind of locked on the TV screen. And then Lance is. You know, they 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 leave everything in. It's like raw, it's uncut, and Lance is is talking to who I assume is Randy West, the camera. Randy West, yeah, Yeah, and and just saying, you know, I who knows? I don't know if this thing's gonna come off. And Lance is looking at his watch, and you know, wondering if Lawler maybe got stuck in traffic. (laughs) <laughs> Which, if you've ever been to Memphis, I mean, at three o'clock on a Monday, there's there's no there's no there's no traffic. Um, I'm not sure what was going on. Lawler was maybe like pressing his cape back, backstage. To the <laughs> and I will say that Lawler told me later, he goes, you know, if I could go back and change one thing, I would not have come out with the crown and the cape. 
<laughs> he said he did look like a goof. Oh, well, he looked like an idiot. Yes, according he like a goof. According to according to Funk, and he, and Lawler, you can see Lawler almost almost cracked up when uh, when Funk starts riding him about that. Uh, but the, but the real kicker is when Lance goes uh, if. Uh, you know, you know, who knows if this crazy thing's going to come off? And he lights up a cigarette. Oh, yeah, that's the best part. Oh. <laughs> and and and, that, and, and, and I know where you're going with this. Wasn't Lance a, like uh, I would say a shame, but he, he was probably he, he didn't like that, did he? That that was on the air. Well, at the time, it didn't bother him. I mean, he was a smoker. Yeah. It was still it was pretty social socially accepted. Yeah, uh, exactly. But years later, he said so many people. You know, after he had fought so hard to quit smoking, so many people would bring that up to him. <laughs> And they would ask him if he still smoked, and or they would like go out of their way to go. You know, you should really stop smoking. And, and he goes, "That was twenty years ago. I stopped." Could you imagine bumming a cigarette off Lance Russell? <laughs> and just, and just that'd yeah. be amazing. Yeah, just kind of shooting the bull with him a little bit. Well, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it'd be hilarious. Uh, with all the conversation I had with Lance as a kid, I asked him about Jumbo Sharuda. <laughs> who, who had just beaten Nick Bockwinkel. And I think I think Bix got a kick out of this when I wrote about it in my tribute to Lance. Uh, but I've got Lance's autograph on a program, and, and I said, uh, I said, what do you think about uh, this Jumbo Ruda? I don't think I quite knew how to say his name. And uh, so, you know, Jumbo, the Jumbo guy. And Lance goes, oh, Jumbo. And Lance goes, Jumbo Sharuda. Yes, yes, a very clever wrestler. Uh, but I will say this. If he doesn't finish opponent off early, he can get frustrated, and that leaves him prone uh, to mistakes. And in that sense, the king matches up really well with him because the king has a lot of stamina. And I was like, ooh. <laughs> oh, man, we got we to gotta get Jerry Jarrett to sign that damn match. Bring <laughs> Could you belt. imagine that would actually would have happened? <laughs> I know, that would <laughs> It would have been incredible, but the hell they wouldn't. They wouldn't even let Rick, Mar- Rick Martell come into the Coliseum. Yeah, for that's a, true. for a defense, which I thought that I thought that match with Martell and Lawler in Nashville was was great. It was much better. yeah, well, it's hell of a match, better than the Flair match. Uh, it's hell of a damn match. Yeah, on September thirtieth. Yeah, but uh, at any rate, now we're we're jumping four years ahead. Uh, <laughs> Funk, uh, you know, it uh, comes out. He arrives first. It's his challenge, his showdown. So of course he's going to arrive. He's cursing. They're bleeping him out. You can only imagine what he's saying, but it's it's pretty clear. Uh, and Lance is like, "Hey, come on!" And Lance is pleading with me. You know, we got to we got to keep this we got to keep this clean, Terry. We wouldn't use this. And Terry pauses for a second, looks at him, and is like, "I don't give up." <laughs> it's just uh, you know I'd never seen anything like it on Memphis wrestling before. Uh, now and now, Chris, you saw this years later. Now, as a kid, my mind yeah. my mind is blown. But you were you freaked out a little bit when you saw this the first time, right? Yeah, I saw this. I want to say nineteen ninety eight is when I got the ta- the tape on because um. I got it from John McAdam, uh, and uh, I saw on his tape list. I was like, "Man, this this sounds like a must see deal." And, and Meltzer had talked about it. I, I have you know seen him talk about it before. I'm like, "This just sounds like awesome. An empty arena match, you know, no fans. This just sounds awesome." And I got the copy, and see, I got the copy that was unedited. See, John had the unedited copy, 
directly oh. from whoever. So it's got all the curse words. Yeah. Everything. <laughs> it's got everything in it. No no cuts, nothing. Um, and he had on a Terry Funk comp tape that he, he had. The best, best Terry Funk. Okay. And oh my God. I mean, it was like, it was amazing. It was, a, it was, it was fl- flat amazing. Because, I mean, I love Terry even back then. But, you know, my appreciation didn't grow for Terry like it has and you know until I really started watching more and more and more and more. But just seeing all this stuff and just being in awe of this whole situation and Metzoff Coliseum looking huge, you know, empty and huge. Because when you when you watch Memphis and the Metzoff Coliseum, you basically only saw, you know, the ringside area. And you would see the you know, when they were brawl around the state you know, stage and the interest ways, but and you knew it was a big building. But you didn't know how big it was when all the lights are on and it's empty. And it's like, man, it's a big building. Yeah. And um, just and, and with Lance being there and the cigarette and just, you know, the banter between Lance Terry Funk, which was tremendous. And then Lawler, you know, like you said, just showing up late and walking with his crown, his cape on, like it's, you know, regular main event yeah. at the Coliseum. And, and, and chewing gum. <laughs> yeah, chewing gum. <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine if he would have done like one of his elaborate entrances for this? Like he would have rode a horse or <laughs> <laughs> rappel from the ceiling for an empty arena match. And like that, the, and like the area jobbers carrying him on the throne or something. <laughs> like that. Or, yeah, yeah. His you know his confidants Jim Jameson and Robert Reed carrying into the ring, or him coming from up under the stage. You know, <laughs> that mean that would have made it even more of a yeah a spectacle well, but uh the cape the cape the, the cape the cape was enough but yeah <laughs> but 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 that line with lance going uh you know there there's a chance you will never see this and then with that uh you know he i believe he's like well he kind of shrugs his shoulders and and then off we go and when he and lawler lock up it, it's it's bizarre because again there's they have no crowd to feed off of they kind of uh brawl around the ringside area in the chairs and it's a it's again it's a little sloppy but it's made up for it in the fact that it's that it's not polished it's really rough around the edges uh it almost has like the feel of a like documentary film or something uh like something you really you really were not supposed to see uh, yeah, that's that's or snuff people. or maybe even a snuff film. Well, <laughs> well yeah, of course. <laughs> you know, you get your buddies together and uh, yes. a, a case of beer and watch a snuff film. <laughs> and uh, and then and, and Terry's just like shrieking throughout all of it, like a madman. And you know, and you could and the, the the acoustics in the Mid South Coliseum are so brilliant that it just it's just ringing throughout the entire place. And uh, the brawl near the uh, where, where, now, where Lance would normally be set up to call the action, um, and Funk slams Lawler's head a few times into the uh, into the table. And again, it does it doesn't have that same oomph because there's no crowd reaction to it. And so, but it, there, there's no way that any 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 two people could have pulled it off any better than they did. And even then, no. it, it was difficult in spots. No. Uh... They were the two that yeah. could do this. I don't. I don't know of any other two guys that could have had this type of match in that environment and made it work like they did. No, I agree. Well, and some people debate whether or not if this truly did work, uh, because as I think we all know by now, uh, the finish, the Funk starts, you know, 
as Lance describes, he's getting to get, he's making some kind of makeshift uh, club. He takes the ringside steps and he's breaking it off and he gets a jagged piece and he goes for Lawler's eye. And Lance, you know, he didn't do it often, but he did it a few times over the years. He, he throws the microphone down like, hey, hey, come on. And at that moment, Lawler kicks his arm. Funk gets the, uh, the jagged piece right in his eye. Just gushes blood and then there's like this awkward edit and Lawler's kind of standing over him with the with the jagged piece in, in his hand like he's just done a number on Funk but they couldn't even show that part and and Funk is is to the point of tears screaming begging yeah. for help he's he's even begging Lawler for help and Lawler like disgusted with the whole thing just Remember, he, I don't know if you remember this moment. He just throws the spike down and it takes a yeah. bounce right outside the ring. And it's just like he's hes almost like he's disgusted with himself. You couldn't believe that Terry Funk dragged him to to the depths that he, <laughs> he did. Yes. You, you know, that he, that he, put, he, he went into Terry Funk's world and he felt dirty. Yes, exactly. This is Jerry Lawler, you know, right, the right. guy who, who had done dastardly things as a heel. Yes, yes. You know, here he is. Well, as a heel, I mean, you know, only babyface in the country I know of that routinely is throwing fire. Well, that's true. Too. <laughs> when he matches with the pile driver, but even this, even this was 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 too much for him. And yes. and then Lance, and just you know, he looks, he goes up to Terry, looks at it, and goes, Terry, I, I got, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get you some help. And Terry's like, huh? Don't leave me, Lance. Please, please, Lance, don't leave me. Lawler, he's yellow. He's yellow. <laughs> he's still trying to convince himself that Lawler's a coward. Now, yeah, he's a chicken shit. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Come here. You didn't finish me off, Lawler, when you had the chance. Now, uh, you have a problem with the, with the way this ended, the the finish. A lot, a, lot of, a lot of people argue that it should have been Lawler who was hurt, but uh, to you know, to me. Uh, they still wanted to keep Lawler really strong. He had just come off the broken leg. I think it was too soon to do any kind of injury angle. Uh, I think a better finish may have been for them both just to be bloody as hell and exhausted to the point, you know, it, it just had to stop. Um, you know, maybe the police come in or something like that and separate them. I don't know, but uh, it did, you know, and it, it did set up Terry Funk's uh, one of his few appearances in the studio where he shows up with the bandaged eye. And it certainly worked for me because I was there for the first rematch that they had. It was uh, Funk with the, with the bandaged eye and Dory Funk. And Lawler brought in Briscoe to be his partner. And Lance said it was the first time that three NWA World Heavyweight Champions had been in the ring at the same time in a tag match. And, of course, he said four World Heavyweight Champions because he was including Lawler as a CWA champion. And, see, and, and that was a month after it aired. Right. That's, I mean, yeah, because they... I don't know if Terry had had. I don't, I don't know. He may have went to Japan. I don't know, but uh, yeah, it was a month after. It was May 18th is when they had the match, and you know the, the angle aired on April 18th. So yeah, yeah, and you know I think there were about six or seven thousand people there, and then it's so funny they draw that they draw like six or seven thousand that week, and then they come back the next week and do like two thousand more people for Lawler and Plowboy Frazier <laughs> against the Funks. <laughs> it takes oh, the, you mean the, you know, the week after is Lawler and Funk. So proper solo. Oh, okay, okay. I thought it was. You no, know, look, no, the Texas Death Match that you, that you're thinking about. Yeah, the same day as the empty arena match. It was that night. Oh, okay. So I'm a little yeah. bit off here. Yeah, it was April 6th. Yep. Okay. 
Yeah. Uh, okay. And so, wait a minute. And the so when was the Briscoe match? Was that May eighteenth? May eighteenth. Okay. Mm-hmm. And I'm all over the place. Because Lawler Lawler faced Dory on the eleventh. Yeah. Um, interesting. So, it's interesting that of all those uh, of all the folks who came through, Dory's the one who Lawler didn't pin. <laughs> he beat by disqualification. He beat by disqualification. In thirty two minutes. <laughs> oh my gosh! And, and it was almost like Dory. Just wasn't going to take a big bump for any of all those punches. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, I mean, and in the middle of all this is the whole Kevin Sullivan angle going on, and Blackwell comes in for yeah. his shot on May 4th, and there's all kinds of stuff going on, but they they, they kind of keep it alive, you know, and throughout, because Terry Funk goes into the studio. Right, right. And wreaks complete havoc. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. and then which sort of you know people kind of point to the randy savage angle as being uh really effective but they also and, it, and i think probably it was for some of the territory but they didn't see the previous week when randy had been introduced for memphis only uh has has an awa contender that lawler was next in line to knock off to get a shot at bogwinkle which i thought diluted the angle a little bit and uh on the memphis end um uh, but that's neither here nor there when talking about Terry Funk. Uh, yeah, Terry, uh, real, real quick, Terry Funk appears in the studio on the 16th. Okay. Right. So two days before the Coliseum show, the and, first. And then and then that fantastic Funk appearance when uh, Lawler is able to put the differences aside. He needs somebody. He needs a fighter who can get revenge on his cousin Carl Fergie, uh, Sabu, and Bobby Eaton, uh, tagging with uh, the King and Sweet Brown Sugar. Uh, who would just turn right. babyface and that crazy, crazy. Uh, and, and you mentioned a deal too, like on the on the bicycle tape that went around. Never aired. That funk. Well, funk didn't funk like sort of wander out for a second. He won. He wandered out <laughs> on the set, and Lance said, "Not now, Terry. We'll, we'll get to you later." Right. <laughs> and then and on the and on the you know, the bicycle show, he never appeared again. So I bet those people are like. What the hell was that? <laughs> well, there's Terry Funk doing a walk-on, and he's not coming to our towns. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure a lot of them knew that Memphis had their own thing. Oh, I'm pretty we, sure they had to. Yeah, yeah. And and a lot of times guys would slip up, you know. You could tell, you, you could almost tell when they weren't supposed to say Memphis. Yeah. You know, and, and they, or, they, or they would try to cover it like, when I get you in the ring Monday night, or Tuesday night, any night of the week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that happened. It happened. Yeah, happened a lot. It happened. But yeah, that was January 29th, 83. Yeah, when that when that happened. So Funk, but anyway, May, the May 16th show, Funk goes out there and he beats everybody up. Even the Nightmares, who are heels. Right. You know, managed by Jimmy Hart. <laughs> Just raising hell. Uh, now, where, where do you think this ranks? And I'm not going to say that this is, this is one of the greatest angles of all time. But I will say, without a doubt, the, one of the most memorable. Absolutely. I mean, it's one of the most... It's one of the things that when the internet was starting to become a thing among wrestling fan community... It's one of those things where it's kind of like one of those things you, you had to search out. You had to see. It was, it, it, it was on that short list of, okay, what do I need to buy? What do, what do I need? How do I, I need to see this. I need to trade for this. I need to buy. I need, I need to see this. I need to see this. That's, that's basically what it is. It's, a, it's one of those must-see type angles that you have to see because so many people have talked about it. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and it's on YouTube, of course, and – it's extremely popular, and people still talk about it to this day. I mean, it's one of the most 
popular things that's ever done. And I'm, I've heard Lance say it before that he was surprised at how many people, you know, were so in love with that. You know, <laughs> he, he would he would have never thought. I, I'm sure, that, and all of them thought that. Okay, it's just a piece of business, you know, like we normally do. This is, you know, there's nothing special, real special here. Right. Right. And little did they know, you well, know, what was going to happen. And maybe, and maybe that was a little bit of a shoot. Maybe they, the the real debate on whether or not they were going to show it was, you know, did it look good enough? <laughs> yeah (laughs) you know what i mean but uh definitely definitely uh, something that was way ahead of its time and it's been copied several times since uh but never quite as as effective as the first time around even though you could argue you know it didn't lead to any sellouts uh or anything like that but you know there were some good crowds uh uh, following that for for a couple of weeks and then they they end up going a different direction and they in the wrestling war between the first family that summer of 81 which you have so much great footage of on your youtube channel uh man that they just catch they just catch fire with uh team lawler against against the first family yeah absolutely and and and, you know terry funk is somebody who people remember his memphis work but he he only worked memphis just like a handful of times in his whole career you know yeah but he's associated with so much with lawler that, you know, a guy I remember in the early 90s, Joel Goodhart was booking them against each other in Philadelphia. You know, I mean, it's just, they just became like synonymous with each other among like the, these smart fans that saw that match and wanted to have them against each other. And, and just like with Dundee, you know, we had Bill Dundee on last week and I said that uh, Lawler and Dundee would probably be fighting at the gates of hell, uh, possibly with Terry Funk interfering. Uh, you know, so. <laughs> He'll be the Terry Funk will be in a lower depth of hell, and he'll like come through with Kevin Sullivan, maybe through the, <laughs> through the bottom and and wipe them both out. But uh, well, hey, Chris, man, I appreciate you joining us here today on KFR. I certainly uh, will hope that uh, that you come back on a on a somewhat regular basis. And oh, anytime, and, anytime you want me, I'm here. Which is uh, you know, it's it's uh, I actually I put you over on Chicago radio the other day. I was oh, well, that's nice. Exactly. <laughs> Chicago radio. Well, he was asking me if, if if the Memphis style would have been accepted elsewhere, and I said, "Man, I talk to fans all over the world who, I, you know, have discovered it through YouTube, or maybe they their their fandom dates back to the tape trading days." But absolutely, I mean, I, I think it it would have worked. Um, you know, but he grew up in AWA country where they had like one angle yeah. a year and uh, the, the worst television show in the country. Uh, but but I will say this: when AWA did an angle, it was usually very effective because they seldom uh, pulled them off. So, uh, yeah, you know, one thing uh, that it was, <laughs> it was I, I found my copy of Inside Wrestling. Oh boy! And boy, Lawler had to figure, man, what what do I have to do to get on the damn cover? You know, there's like all this, <laughs> stuff. yeah. You know, he it, it, so much crazy stuff goes on in Memphis. The Kaufman deal, he didn't get on the cover. Uh, the empty arena match, he gets a mention on the cover. But there's a story inside, and it's one of those cases where Aptor doesn't quite. He, he goes a little too far with it. Uh, this is no. This is Bill Aptor. Yeah, this is Bill Aptor going with the closing uh, as he wraps up his story. Uh, Lawler tried to check on Funk at the hospital. He told me to drop dead, said Lawler, tears welling in his eyes. Doesn't, <laughs> doesn't he know I never wanted this to happen? He doesn't believe me. Heck, I don't want this to happen to anyone. And so one man mourns while the other lies in a hospital bed, staring darkly through bandages, wondering if light will ever pierce that left eye again. 
Man. Yeah, that's the aftermags of the old days, Man. yes. That would ring a tear to a glass eye right there. <laughs> okay. Yeah, especially Jared Jarrett. <laughs> hey, now. Whoa. <laughs> well. Are you, are you on Team Pritchard? Come on, man. No, I, well, I, no I, I, I'm on team everybody. I just, I'm on team entertainment. I like, it's, I like to see them go at it. So. Aren't, you, aren't you one of the Bowden Brigade? <laughs> I just love seeing them go. I love seeing them uh, do their thing. I, I kind of hate it when Jerry toned it down. But I thought it was hilarious how he was uh, the, the going Mr. off on. The Mr. Jarrett character. <laughs> Mr. Jarrett, yes. Uh, because I was, I was sitting there reading his tweets and picturing him in his – you know, promo voice doing those. Yep. But he, he'll go from reading a poem to, <laughs> to just throwing all these expletives out on Bruce Pritchard. <laughs> Sit there in his silk boxers somewhere. <laughs> uh, all right. Ladies and gentlemen, that was Chris Zellner, uh, co-host of the Between the Sheets program with David Bixen Span and also Exile on Bad Street. All right. We'll be back with more Kentucky Fried Wrestling right after this. And now, Funk, across the way, slams down the steps leading up to the ring. Uh-oh, he's, he's trying to get a club of some type. He busts off right in half one of the two-befores. Lawler now trying to get back up, stumbles back into the chairs, but he's back on his feet, and here comes, here comes Funk with that... Spike in his hands. Slams Lawler down on the table. And Terry Funk standing completely wide open. This is awful. I see it. Yeah. Asking! Asking! All right, come on, Terry. All right. I got the microphone over here. You asking? Lawler. Terry, you want this? Watch this! Watch this! Come on. Come on, Terry. It's all over with. Terry Funk climbing back up in the ring right now. Tell him, Lawler! Tell him! Funk with the... Put the A. Come on. Come on. Come on, Lawler! Put that... Tell him! Come on, Terry. Come on, get his eyes! I got his eyes! Don't tell me. Well, I'll be you try to get in. Don't here. do that. Lawler fighting his way back has just slammed Terry Funk. Kicks him right in the elbow where he had it. Terry Funk is down now. Lawler back on his feet. Lawler picks up that stick that uh, oh, oh, Terry Funk had. Oh, my eyes! Put it down now. The, man, the man's eye. Oh. I can't see. Doctor! Doctor! God help me! Help me! Wait. Please help me! Help me! That's my. right. His eyes hurt bad. Bye. <laughs> mm. Bye. Okay.
And we are back on Kentucky Fried Wrestling. We want to thank our guest, Marvin Stockwell, from the Coliseum Coalition, an organization that has really pulled the strap down and kicked some ass as far as saving the building. And it really looks like the Coliseum's future is very bright indeed. And we want to thank my buddy uh, Chris Zellner from the Between the Sheets podcast and Exile on Bad Street for joining us for a special look at the empty arena match between Jerry the King Lawler and Terry Funk, an angle that is still talked about to this day. You can find Brian Last talking about wrestling on Twitter at GreatBrianLast. You can find me on Twitter at TravScottBowden. And be sure to check out my Kentucky Fried Wrestling Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Kentucky Fried Wrestling. Also, be sure to check out MemphisWrestlingTees.com, the official store of the KFR podcast, where we just debuted a brand new shirt dedicated to the Coliseum Coalition and next week's Roundhouse Revival. For Brian Last, this is Scott Bowden. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye, everybody. The announcers on this program are selected and paid by parties other than this station, namely the promoters of Championship Wrestling. <laughs>